0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. John Fielder, the acclaimed landscape photographer, has spent the last eight months reviewing his life's work, which he's now donating to the people of Colorado.
1: To see these remarkable remote places all over again and to understand ultimately that I had been effectively everywhere in Colorado, which I didn't really know until I went through the images. Fielder,
0: who's 72, invites us into his home near Silverthorne and shares memories from his decades in the wild.
1: Have you ever smelled decaying aspen leaves in the fall? It's kind of a musky mm. um, smell that's unlike any other smell.
0: Plus, advice for amateurs. And does he touch up photos?
1: Believe it or not, the digital sensors don't do it right, and I have to fix that.
0: Fielder also reflects on ego and mortality. I donated my beat-up car to Colorado Public Radio.
2: Because I was super attached to it, when it was time to get rid of it, it was just nice to know that it went to CPR. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Somebody gave me a call, and they came and picked it up. Our family was excited, one, to get the car off the street, and two, that it went to a good place. It kind of felt like I was giving back and saying thank you, like paying it back, but also paying it forward at the same time. If you have a car to donate, start the process at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When a past governor spruced up his office at the Capitol, he chose a photograph to blow up and mount on the wall. The image, big enough to step into, is of a ranch near Ridgeway. It has served as the backdrop to countless press conferences. And it is by the landscape photographer and conservationist John Fielder, whose books and calendars are also in many Colorado homes. He is one of the state's best known artists. And now, at age 72, he's thinking about his legacy, which I talked to him about once I got to the end of a snow-covered dirt road. And I've just engaged four-wheel drive. Sliding around a bit there. Fielder's home is above Silverthorne with a view of the Gore Range, but the first thing he shows me is the tidy shed where he keeps his outdoor gear.
1: We have a 16-foot Avon raft over there, Um, sleeping bags, pads, skis behind us here.
0: How often do your photographic expeditions rely on rafts and tents and sleeping
1: bags? Always. Uh, I mean, other than spring and fall, when I do aspen tree photography and aspens are accessible via roads, it's all wilderness stuff. So all of this hardcore gear is, uh, these are my tools.
0: It was freezing the day of my visit, so we quickly left the shed, cast off our snow boots, and stepped into his living room with picture windows taller than us both. How many times have you taken a photo simply from the vantage point of your living room?
1: You know, that's a good question. I've been here for 15 years, and I have thousands of photos from the patio and through the living room window that are as spectacular as any that I've done in the wilderness. That's how cool this place is. And then behind us are the Williams Fork Mountains, the Ptarmigan Peak Wilderness. So we, we're we above the lower Blue River Valley with mountain ranges on either side. Are you a hermit? A 50% hermit, 50%, you know, speaking and doing slideshows and teaching workshops to thousands of people. But That's the nice thing. I have the freedom to choose when I want to be with people and when I want to be a hermit. What
0: do you think is your more fundamental nature, or are you perfectly 50-50?
1: No, I'd say I'm biased towards loner. I like being in the wilderness by myself so I can concentrate on my photography. I love being here um, alone, but at the same time, I've had lots of guests and visitors up here. But again, I can choose um, whether I want to be with people or not. You
0: are often solitary, but you're not lonely when you do this work.
1: No, it's tough to be lonely with elk, deer, bighorn sheep, and mountain goats bugging you all the time.
0: All right, to the reason I'm here. John Fielder is giving his life's work to the people of Colorado. By this spring, thousands of his photographs will have been cataloged, digitized, and made available online. John, you donated to History Colorado 50 years of photography and nature writing. As for the images, you distilled about 5,000 from 200,000. How do you begin to do that kind of whittling?
1: Well, you got to have quick fingers because there were, I don't know, 140,000 four by five inch transparencies.
0: And then the rest of the images would have been digital, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah. So they were you know, 140,000 film photos, and then digitally since 2009, effectively, another 50,000 from which I distilled a couple of thousand of those.
0: This must have been quite a walk down memory lane for you.
1: Yeah, that was one of the benefits. I mean, not only the distillation for the donation, but to revisit all these places that I had been in the last... 40 years that I've been doing this for a living, and then there were some from the amateur days to see these remarkable remote places all over again and to understand ultimately that I had been effectively everywhere in Colorado, which I didn't really know until I went through the images.
0: Was it a, a misty experience, a tear-inducing experience
1: <laughs> to go through some of those images? <laughs> no, not really. I don't get I didn't get I mean I get emotional with grandkids and things like that but misty in the sense of this was my plan I had planned 40 years ago when I turned my hobby hiking and photography into a career to ultimately make a living of it one day and to publish books and calendars which I I ended up doing and to have some sort of denouement ending last act And so, yeah, kind of misty about the last act thing. I mean, hopefully I'm not gonna be dead anytime soon, but to have achieved what I set forth to do 40 years ago, go everywhere in Colorado, um, happened. I,
0: I thought about asking if you had favorite photographs, but something about that struck me as absurd, given the scope of your work. And then I realized it might actually be the wrong question Because your photographs fundamentally are about place. And so, John Fielder, what are some of your favorite places to shoot photographs?
1: This is why, Ryan, you are a good journalist. Because, yeah, that's the question I'm forced to answer ad nauseum is what's my favorite photo. You know, haven't been so many places. I'm what I call a nature egalitarian. Um, It's all good. Especially under wonderful light for photos, but I'm an alpine guy. Um, my favorite place on Earth, whether it's in Colorado or around the American West or around the world, is to be above treeline and in, in what we call the alpine zone. So here we are in my home in the Montane. We're right at the border of the Montane and the subalpine ecosystems, but. If we could see the Gore Range through the window, we'd see the Alpine Zone, where it's just rocks and tundra and lakes and waterfall and wildflowers and infinite views. So what I just described it to be is why I like being there. Is the light different
0: at those altitudes?
1: Well, yeah, the, the visibility of a rising and setting sun coming up above a horizon that's behind you typically because the sun's hitting that peak and reflecting in that lake at, you know, 5.45 a.m. in the morning or 8.30 p.m. in the evening. So there's this direct light. And in order to take advantage of it photographically and emotionally, I've had to be somewhat of a physicist and understand quality of light and color of light and intensity of light. And, you know, when the sun is oblique, at sunrise and sunset, cutting through an arc of atmosphere 100 miles thick above the Earth. It cuts through more atmosphere than at noon when it's perpendicular to the Earth, and it's only cutting through, you know, 1 of the atmosphere. You,
0: you are getting positively meteorological here.
1: Well, uh, but it's physics because the more particulate matter that white light from the sun penetrates, The more that the cool colors, the short wavelengths like blues and greens and violets are absorbed, and that's what makes a blue sky and made invisible, which leaves what? Yellow, orange, red, fuchsia, magenta, which is the colors that bathe the landscape and the mountains in the alpine zone at sunrise and sunset.
0: What's the longest you've waited in a single spot to take a photograph?
1: It's difficult for me to be in one place for more than a day and wait for the light to happen. If the light is not good where I am, I'll move on down the road or the trail looking for a better time and a better place and better light rather than sticking around and wasting time in one single place.
0: Now, you mentioned being an Alpine guy, uh, but I know that you have spent a good amount of time on the plains. And... I recall, I think the last time we spoke was for a guidebook that you did to lottery lands in Colorado, because lottery proceeds benefit public lands in this state. And you'd gone out to kind of everyday places, playgrounds that these dollars had paid for in small towns on the plains, for instance. Could you name a spot on the plains that's particularly meaningful to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, to have photographed skate parks and and playgrounds along with ranches was uh, a very eclectic collection of locations. But for example, Daniel's Park to the south of Denver on that beautiful escarpment called Castle Pines um, with a cliff band and looking down to East Plum Creek in the valley below and the rampart range to the west and then Mount Evans and Pikes Peak to the west and southwest with bison. So that's one of Denver's repositories um, for bison. You know, Daniels Park is a great example of a of an open space and a park and a place that all of us can go and enjoy, in that case, what the landscape on the plains looked like 150 years ago when we had clouds, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 bison in one fell swoop.
0: It's a remarkable thought to think of how they dominated the landscape at a different time.
1: 65 million creatures extirpated down to 1,000 in Yellowstone National Park. Can you imagine such a thing?
0: I actually want to ask you about how landscapes have changed in the decades you've done this work. Is your job a front row seat to climate change?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Unfortunately. It started for me maybe 25 years ago when I started seeing insects invading conifers. Normally, in my life, I remember in the 70s and the 80s, you would have 30 below zero cold snaps for five days at a crack up in the mountains in Kremlin and South Park and San Luis Valley where the Cold air settles and it gets very cold, and that's enough to kill insects in the bark, which is what they inhabit, like pine bark beetle and spruce beetle. And now we don't have those 30 below snaps, so the insects don't die. In fact, they now leave the bark in the spring and propagate more than once and invade millions of acres of trees. So because of global warming, we've lost... Millions of acres of forest around the West and around the planet. And the other manifestation is snow and ice. I used to see a lot more in the 70s and the 80s again, uh, remnants of glaciers, you know, that were here 10,000 years ago, like the St. Frayne Glacier south of Rocky Mountain National Park, west of Boulder in the Indian Peaks Wilderness. And in Rocky Mountain National Park, a place where I photographed every square inch of with a special permit back in the 90s, I got to go up into those remote, hidden drainages and see the vestiges of the days of the ice age, and all of that is almost all gone now. You know, you've got to go north into northern U.S. and Canada to see glaciers.
0: So much of your work has been about celebrating public lands and about conservation. Are there places that you have photographed that have then become quite popular? and made you question whether to have featured them so prominently. I I might call this the John Denver syndrome. You know, John Denver fell in love with Colorado, and along with him, so did throngs of others.
1: A double-edged sword, for sure, about my photography and attracting people to Colorado and into remote places. Um, yeah, there are some places that I don't describe, like... When I go off trail and I find a beautiful lake with wildflowers around it, in my captions, if it appears in a book or if it goes to the media, I don't describe where that is. But for trailed places, I want people to go there. And here's the irony. It's one thing to look at a fielder photograph in a book. It's entirely another to be at that place and enjoy not just the view, but the smells of wildflowers, the sound of gurgling water, the taste of fresh snowmelt off the snow, and to touch that aspen tree and, and that powder that's the sunscreen for the aspen tree. The sensuousness of nature is expressed five different ways. And when people experience that, only then do they become advocates, I've noticed, for protecting and preserving what's left of wildness in America, that a book or a picture doesn't Mm. do it.
0: The picture is a starting point, then, for you. I love that you just invoked taste. I don't often associate landscapes with taste. Tell me more about the taste of the places you go.
1: Well, it depends on if it's polluted by ramen noodles with cream cheese, which is one of my secret... Recipes to get fat in the body because fat's the only way to really create enough energy. You melt
0: cream cheese in the ramen? Do
1: what I do, yeah. My secret recipe is ramen, a brick of cream cheese, a diced onion, and canned chicken, and that is a very nourishing and tasty recipe. But mm, snow melt. You know, when I'm up at 13,000 feet, and I'm accessing water for my water bottle, I don't have to purify it because it's coming right off the snow. And there's a kind of a steely metallic taste to extremely cold 33-degree water coming out from underneath the snowbank.
0: Mm. What are the touch-ups you do on a photograph once you bring it home?
1: That's a very good question. Uh, With the film, we didn't do a lot of touch-up because you can't touch up a four-by-five-inch transparency, what you see is what you get. But with the digital camera, it's different. What you see on the LCD of the digital camera, even what you download onto your computer, is not all the information that's in the file. So we use programs like Lightroom, and we used to use Photoshop to lighten the shadows, to darken the highlights, mm. to make the colors look the way my eye saw it, because, the believe it or not, the digital sensors under certain kinds of light, don't do it right, and I have to fix that.
0: Wow. I expected you to be a camera hoarder, but you have largely done this work with a very small number of cameras.
1: You know, your um, audio tape recorder is probably picking up signals from my titanium left knee, my titanium right knee, and my titanium cobalt right hip because it's only about 12 inches away (laughs) from those things.
0: You're bionic at this point.
1: Yeah, so as a result, the less gear the better to keep my body fit over the years and the more food and ramen I can take if I'm not taking cameras. So I've limited the number of lenses and I really haven't used that many specific cameras in my lifetime.
0: I mean, I think it's probably under 50.
1: Cameras, yeah. Well, it's way under fifty. I, I can think of maybe six film cameras from small format, thirty-five millimeter to medium format, to large format, four x five that I, I've owned six or seven. And then digital, I started with the Canon EOS Rebel, like most other people did, thirty-five millimeter around two thousand eight. And since then, I've only had about five of those. So yeah, maybe that bespeaks of the fact that it's really not about the equipment, it's about the eye.
0: Do you take photos with your phone?
1: Absolutely. I have 10,000 photos on my phone in the iCloud. You're not a snob. Uh, about what?
0: I-, I Photographic equipment, about the
1: accessibility of photography. Well, I think early in my career I was because I was insecure. You know, when you're trying to raise a family and make a living out of something that's pretty darn tough to make a living out of. I probably had some attitude, as you're suggesting. (laughs) But you know what changes you is nature. You know, it's such a big thing, and you are such a small, insignificant thing. Literally, the grandness of what I've been doing for 50 years changes you and makes you much more humble. And I'm not reticent to say that humility is one of the byproducts emotionally of what's happened to me outdoors for 50 years Mm.
0: that nature is humbling
1: well that too i've had to self-rescue myself over a hundred times when nature decided to challenge me um for sure but just the beauty the sublimeness of 4.3 billion years of the evolution of life on earth if that doesn't allow you to appreciate your smallness and how lucky you are in your smallness, to be on a planet, to be in a solar system, to be in a universe, to be in a multiverse. I can't, there's nothing else other than spiritual, religious things, which Mm. works for some people. Nature does it for me.
0: Give us a story of having to (laughs) self-rescue.
1: Do you have two hours? (laughs) We'll go back to the most recent ones because my memory, you know, fails me for the ones 40 years ago. But one was out skiing an avalanche above Ashcroft, Colorado, above Aspen. Um, I was at the Green Wilson Hut, backcountry ski hut. We decided to ski an innocent 30-degree, 33-degree rollover of snow. And I went first so I could photograph those behind me coming afterwards. And I went down about 200 yards after skiing this drop-off completely covered with snow, no rocks, no nothing, looked innocent to me. And I stop all of a sudden, pull my my point-and-shoot camera out of my pocket, and I turn around to take photos of the other four And I look, and the entire ridge has broken off and is coming straight at me. So what happened was, when I stopped all of a sudden, it sent one of those what people think are subtle, but they're not subtle because so many people die. Sonic signal up through the weak layer, 200 yards back up the mountain, that released the snow. The snow came at me. I began skating as quickly as I could through the powder down the mountain, went about another 200 yards, felt that the avalanche was behind me, turned off into the rocks to the right as the avalanche went past me.
0: Did you get a photo of it?
1: Afterwards, we went back up at lunchtime, and we took pictures of the fracture, and the fracture was 12 feet high where the snow had broken off, and and we could actually see the exposed rock now where the snow had slid from. That was the weak layer from the snow loading in a big storm the night before with lots of wind.
0: Okay, a series of questions that are going to sound like we're on a first date, but I'm particularly interested in your answers to them. Favorite color?
1: Green. Green. So, leaves. Well... Grass. Tundra. Green. I mean, it's the most common color in the Alpine zone. Decorated, of course, with hints of magenta, red, yellow, purple, um you know the flowers
0: favorite colorado wildlife
1: bighorn sheep mm. because mountain goats are not native we brought them as an invasive species here in the 1940s and so too would elk be one of my favorite um but a moose would not be my favorite because it's an invasive species too moose are not Native to Colorado, they lived in northern climes, and we brought those here now, too. And I wonder, what are the unintended consequences of invasive species, just like bad plants invading Hawaii? Do
0: you have a favorite flower? Colorado flower.
1: That's a no-brainer. Oh. I'm just like everybody else, the Colorado columbine.
0: You're going to say the columbine. The state flower. Absolutely. In other words. Favorite
1: tree? Aspen tree, without a doubt, because I've made... Three quarters of my living selling yellow aspen tree photographs and to a lesser extent, lime green in the spring.
0: I want to talk about your path to photography. It came about in a somewhat unusual way. You were an aspiring accountant from the East Coast when you came to Colorado in the early 1970s to run department stores. How did accounting morph into Well, I guess retail and then photography.
1: It does seem like a cacophony of skills, but (laughs) it was that combination of odd skills that one normally wouldn't associate with a nature photographer that allowed me to make a good living, raise a family, and be comfortable in my old age now.
0: Oh, it gave you the ability to monetize.
1: Well... My accounting degree allowed me to do pro forma balance sheets, P&L statements, profit and loss statements, cash flow statements for banks, and then hopefully they loan you money. And I had to know how to sell. Yeah, I can make a good painting or a photo or a sculpture, but can I sell it? And my career in the department store business with the old Denver Dry Goods and May DNF, taught me how to sell and merchandise and taught me that, hey, yeah, if I had books to sell, I call up the buyer at B. Dalton or Borders or Barnes & Noble and we make a deal to sell them them books and then add to that strong legs and a good eye and you've got four or five ingredients that allowed me to make a living as a photographer. Mm.
0: Your love for Colorado actually goes back further than that. I want you to tell us about Dolly Hickman,
1: well, this is going to cause the tears to flow, because that woman was unique on planet Earth. She was a middle school science teacher, did her classroom teaching, but every summer for 20 years, she would load seven middle school kids into what we used to call a station wagon, kind of like today's <laughs> minivan tone, pop-up camper, and drive us for thousands of miles over a five-week period and. July and August to visit archaeological, biological, geological, paleontological sites. So we were digging for geodes and cracking them open to expose those purple crystals. Um, We were hunting for fossils. We were hunting for archaeological artifacts at the Temple of the Sun and Moon in Mexico City, climbing a volcano that erupted in a farmer's cornfield in 1942, paracutine then a second summer up to British Columbia and Banff and Jasper and Crater Lake. As a middle schooler. This was what she did outside of the classroom, would take 13 and 14-year-old kids on these scientific expeditions in the summer with a one-page permission from your mother or father back in the days of not litigious society, and that defined me for the rest of my life as a, a, a scientist, B, a lover of nature, C, somebody who was comfortable sleeping outdoors because every night we'd sleep out in our sleeping bag unless it rained and then we'd you know resurrect the pop-up camper. But this person is the reason why I left the department store business in 1981 when she sprouted from 20 years before within me that I wanted to be outdoors. I wanted to make a living and be outdoors for the rest of my life, not be stuck in a department store. How much
0: of a good photograph can be accidental?
1: You know, I wouldn't admit it because everything that I do is planned and the product of of forethought. But no, I'm just being facetious (laughs) that good photography is two things of equal proportion, 50.000% versus 50.000%. One is the eye. You can't do good photos without a good eye and understanding the basic tenets of design and composition. And number two, being at the right place at the right time. So anybody who tells you otherwise that it's all about me and my skills is telling you wrong because being at the right place at the right time is just as important as your photo skill. So, do you encounter people who think, I could
0: do what John Fielder does? It's just that he's in the right place at the right
1: time. Perhaps in the sense that uh, I got to do it eventually full-time, and so, yeah, I'm going to end up seeing more places and having more opportunities than somebody else, but nobody's ever really taken me to task on that. I mean, I have been taken to task for self-publishing my books and my calendars because Back in the day, I couldn't get a New York, where all the publishers were, a New York publisher, to publish my work. So I used those five skills that I had developed to build my own publishing company. And people would say, well, he can publish anything he wants, you know, whether it's good photos or bad photos. And oh. maybe they're not so good. But that went away, you know, eventually. Are you good
0: at taking criticism?
1: I'm better now. I can't remember... <laughs> at age 72 the last time that I got mad. I mean, how can you get mad when you've been making your living as a nature photographer for 40 years? But yeah, in my immaturity of my my early days when pressure is difficult for all of us to make a living, to earn money, to put food on the table, yeah, I think I was a little more sensitive to criticism then than I am now. Are you self-critical? how can one not be good at what one does without being self-critical? I mean, that defines my evolution back in the 1970s before I was making a living out of it. I was looking at the photos of Elliot Porter, who was the color Ansel Adams of the 20th century, and Adams' black and white photos, and trying to imagine you know, what was going through their head to make that particular composition or design, and then I would go out with my Kodachrome 25, yes, Simon and Garfunkel, Kodachrome 25, and my Canon F1 first film camera, and I would bring that film back, and you know they would send Kodachrome to some place in the universe, and then five days later, you'd get the developed slides back, and you'd look at your slides, and you'd say, does that look like Porter's? And invariably, it didn't look like Elliott Porter's, and you had to ask yourself, why not? And if you had a successful photo, also, why is this successful versus unsuccessful? And that self-critiquing is how I learned photography.
0: And so you had to emulate people you admired before you developed your own style.
1: Absolutely. That is very, as we say, perspicacious of you. Oh, thanks. Ryan, that, yeah, I was copying Elliot Porter the great color landscape photographer of the 20th century who did his first book, by the way, people can look it up, was called In Wildness is the Preservation of the World. And it was inspirational to me because Porter saw the landscape in ways that nobody else that I had seen saw the landscape. So um, yeah, I, I copied Porter. For a while, but then once I started understanding the essence of what makes a good photo, I could depart and start taking those ingredients and piecing together perhaps my own style. But there's the ego, that's the deficiency of trying to be different from somebody else is your ego is now getting involved and your ego is telling you that you're only going to be successful if you're different and recognized as being different from everybody else. Mm. And that's not what drove the success of my photography. What drove the success of my photography was loving nature and letting nature be diffused through my body and through my mind and letting nature be the inspiration for a style if there would be a style at all in my life.
0: Do you believe in the rule of thirds? I've (laughs) I've heard a lot about this from photographers, that you kind of divide a photo into threes, right?
1: You know, I've been teaching photography for 40 years, and I only chuckle because that's one of the basic tenets. But the rule of thirds is only a starting point, just so your listeners understand. I feel like Um, we're
0: getting a free class,
1: John. Yeah, no, there'll be an invoice sent out uh, (laughs) shortly. But the... uh, You know, it's really about asymmetrical. We don't put horizons in the middle because the eye then fights between sky and landscape. We want to direct the viewer's eye. And if we can take the viewer's eye from one place to another, to another place, this becomes a four-dimensional photo. You know, what I'm trying to do is create a three-dimensional image where you have not only length and width, like you have on a photo print, but depth where you're drawing the eye from foreground to background. But can you actually take the viewer on a journey to more than one place, to five places, just like taking a hike on a windy trail which now is the fourth dimension. What's the fourth dimension? Time. So it's a four-dimensional photograph. Length, width, depth, and time. But it's asymmetrical. So a photo might be rule of thirds, but it might be one-sixth, five-sixth. It might be um, one-fourth, three-quarters, depending on where the dividing lines work best. Oh,
0: tell me more about time being represented in photographs. I don't quite get that.
1: So it takes time, For a viewer of a photo to consume the whole photo, if I'm taking that viewer on a journey to the wildflower in the bottom right-hand corner, to the rock with lichens in the top left-hand corner, to the cloud in the top right-hand corner, doesn't that take time? Yes. So it adds a twilight zone to this whole process, the fourth dimension. Time. Ding, 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 (laughs) ding, ding,
0: do you have a favorite smell?
1: in nature? Excellent question. I'm not sure I've ever thought if any of those smells are my favorite. But yes, because my favorite plant on the planet is clearly the aspen tree, because 60% of all my photos I've ever made are aspen trees. Have you ever smelled decaying aspen leaves in the fall? It's kind of a musky Mm. um, smell that's unlike any other smell. And when they uh, become yellow and then brown and they fall off onto uh, the ground. It's a very pungent aroma that's unique to dead aspen tree leaves.
0: The final part of our conversation with Colorado landscape photographer and conservationist John Fielder after a break as he contemplates his own mortality. Also, what's a photo he hasn't taken yet? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
1: Abortion became a constitutional right with Roe v. Wade until it was overturned last year. That's also when Colorado protected abortion access and women from states where abortion is illegal have come here in droves for care. But for those who oppose it, the repeal of Roe is just the beginning. It
2: isn't just about changing the law. It isn't just about overturning Roe v. Wade. We have to actually change people's hearts.
0: Two stories about abortion in Colorado at CPR.org. You are with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I am Ryan Warner. We're spending the bulk of today's show above Silverthorne, Colorado, at the home of landscape photographer and conservationist John Fielder. At seventy-two, he is donating his life's work to History Colorado. Who is this donation for, and what is it for?
1: Well, there's this institution that used to be just called the Colorado Historical Society, founded in the 1870s, just soon after Colorado became a state, now called History Colorado, that is Colorado's primary repository for history. And along with that, history are artifacts, and within those artifacts are photographs. And they have one of the greatest collections of photographs anywhere in the world, including my buddy's photographs, William Henry Jackson, the guy that I tried to find his photo locations for in 300 places in 1998 and show people how Colorado had changed or not or for the better or for the worse. And so, yeah, I had this emotional connection to History Colorado and that they would be the perfect place to have my photos in perpetuity.
0: And to get those photos to people who should see them.
1: Yes, which includes a couple of categories of people you or anybody else who wants to see what let's say arrowhead lake in the gorge lakes that remote drainage that you look at from the trail ridge road in rocky mountain national park would you like to know what it's like not to look at it from 10 miles away but to stand on the edge of it or for a writer or a journalist like you who wants to illustrate um, their audio their writing their video with a field or photograph. They can now do that for a nominal fee downloading from the site or for personal use. I don't care. I'm giving all this stuff up so that everybody can enjoy it however they wish.
0: What if they're doctored? What if they're changed? What if they're made into different kinds of art?
1: I don't care. I've done my thing, I've sold my books and calendars you can do whatever you want to do with it. But there's another audience out there that I hope takes advantage of my my donation, and that is the scientists and the big thinkers who understand that planet Earth is changing Faster and exponentially than we ever thought it would change because of climate change and global warming and that my photos will be a baseline for what Colorado looked like from 1973 to 2022 and that people in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, look at what happened from their day to my day and extrapolate and draw that line and project it into the future and say, is this what we want in 2100? And if their answer is no, what do we do about it? How do we change the way that we live to protect this place we love?
0: You have poured over images from your career. And I have to think that that does make one at least meditate on one's own mortality. So, uh, I, in that context, I want to ask if you're afraid of death.
1: That's a good question. Well, why do I'm, you laugh? So, because that's a serious question. I'm not summoning I'm not sure. that, by the way. George. I'm ready to be head <laughs> serious, Ryan. But, I mean, since you brought it up, um, we humans, we all think about death. But, you know, the the longer I do what I do and make photos of nature and have such an incredible lifestyle and have, as of now, six grandkids and maybe more on the way, the more that I appreciate having been alive for 72 years and the less important it is for me to live to 118 or whatever that nun was when she died a couple of weeks ago uh-huh. over in Europe. <laughs> I read Europe. about that, yeah. So, no, I don't fear death. I mean, I fear probably injury and being stranded in the wilderness more than I fear death. And thank goodness in those 100 self-rescues, I've been able to avoid not only injury, but, but death. It also makes me wonder, and I'm, I'm sorry if
0: this is getting a bit morbid, but w- would you want your ashes scattered somewhere? I mean, you're so connected to the land in life. I have to think that you might want that in death.
1: Yeah, I definitely don't want to be pickled. I want to be burned up into ashes. And when you first came into my home, Ryan, You gravitated like everybody else does towards the window, even though there's no mountain range because it's snowing Uh today. You gravitated towards that window because you knew there was a mountain range there. And yes, you are looking at the place because there's a 30-degree drop-off right here that if the wind is blowing from east to west instead of west to east, in which case the ashes would get in everybody's face, hopefully they (laughs) they get cast down on the hillside amongst the aspen trees on my property.
0: Here on your property... What is the photograph you haven't taken?
1: That is another excellent question. You know, having now uh, revisited my life's work through all of those transparencies and, and digital camera photos, I don't really covet any other place right now. I mean, I've been pretty much everywhere I want to go in Colorado. There are a couple of drainages that I didn't make it into, but it might be seeing the rest of the planet, which I've done a lot of exploring of in my lifetime. Like in Peru, there's a there's a couple of big mountain ranges. One is Cordillera Blanca, which is a big national park, which is managed for foot traffic and you can't camp wherever you want to go. But there's a mountain range called Cordillera Waiwash. And I had a trip planned in 2016 to be guided for two weeks by a guy from Ridgeway, Colorado, around this mountain range with lagunas, these blue-green glacial lagunas and 22,000-foot peaks. Oh. And that, my right knee started going south on me at that point in time, and I had to cancel the trip. And every time I see a photo of Cordillera Waiwash, I just kind of get this emptiness in me that, I why didn't I go there?
0: I know friends when they travel who very specifically don't take photographs because they say the act of taking the photograph removes them from the current moment and from the kind of unencumbered relationship between the naked eye and the landscape. Does taking a photograph ever feel like it distances you from the scene?
1: Another good question. And yeah, you're, you know, especially in the days of the 4 by 5 view camera, I had to set up this big... You know, 15 pound camera on a tripod. I had to use a handheld one degree digital spot meter to measure intensity of light and then kind of guess at my f stop and my shutter speed. And it would take two minutes to set up any one shot. And then I'm under the dark cloth, you know, focusing upside down on the ground glass. And then I'm sticking a sheet film holder. And yeah, you can't be. Um, not distracted from what's going on in front of you. But the more facile that whole process became as I did it more and more, the more that I could still enjoy the sensuousness of the moment, even though I'm trying to make a photo at the same time. But really the, the answer to your question is yes, there are times when I don't make a photo. I mean, there's not gonna be a whole lot of times when I see a beautiful scene and I'm not with the camera making the image, but there's a lot of times when maybe the light is marginal, I'd rather just sit on that ridge and contemplate the meaning of life and whether I'm afraid of death and cool stuff like that (laughs) (laughs) than take a photo.
0: You've brought us full circle. John Fielder, thanks for welcoming me into your home and your mind.
1: Uh, Yeah, we don't get through this thick skull that often, and plus there's a big void in there, and I'm glad there was some space for you to enter. Um, Ryan, thanks for coming up to my home. I appreciate it very much.
0: Nature photographer John Fielder recorded at his home near Silverthorne in Summit County. He's donating his life's work to History Colorado, where they are captioning and digitizing it all in time to have it available online to the public by spring. Colorado tourism is recovering from pandemic shutdowns. CPR's Sarah Mulholland looks into what the state is doing to speed things along.
2: That's the sound of a party in the desert outside Natarita. End of Colorado's multi-billion dollar tourism industry coming back to life. It actually began as an event during COVID that was called a burning van. Natalie Binder runs the festival, now called Planet V. She sent over that clip from last summer's show, which was a lot more organized and bigger than the semi-spontaneous gathering that popped up during the pandemic. The event in 2022 drew about 350 people to the site of an old mining town dotted with cabins and campsites. That's a big deal for a small town. When you can bring even just three to 500 people into an area that only has a population of 500, You know, each person that's spending money on gas and supplies and groceries, it's a huge economic impact to a really small community, even though it might not seem big in the scale of things that happen in other parts of the state. Binder says a rebate from the state helped make it possible. It's easy to go to or easier to go to a place like Telluride. You know, there's just more of a following. There's more population. There's more abundance. And so there's a lot of challenges to holding and events in a rural community, especially one that's really unknown. She was able to recoup about $5,000 of the total $55,000 cost. Colorado's travel industry took a big hit when COVID-19 first shut everything down. Things have since picked back up, especially in the state's resort areas, which have been bursting at the seams with visitors. But the recovery has been uneven. In particular, group travel is taking longer to come back for a lot of reasons. Those types of events have to be planned and paid for well in advance, and they're at risk of being canceled if COVID cases start to climb. On top of that, a lot of group travel revolves around business travel, which has been much slower to bounce back than leisure travel. That's where the state program comes in. To attract event organizers, Colorado is offering a cash rebate that covers up to 10% of eligible hard costs. Elizabeth O'Rear is the Director of Grants and Funding for Colorado's Economic Development Office. We're 18 months through the program and we have another 18 months left. That means events have until the middle of next year to get some of the money. It can pay for things like food and A.V. equipment. The program includes everything from conferences and business meetings to music festivals and even weddings. So far, about $4 million has gone towards the rebates. The money was carved out of the state's general fund. And whatever isn't used, presumably, will go back into it, unless state legislators decide to do something else with the money. We've expended about half of the funds allocated to the cash rebate at this point. O'Rear says the pace of applications tracks what's happening with COVID caseload's pretty closely, showing how vulnerable some parts of the tourism economy are to the pandemic. With that first six months, we had significant amount of applications. Then as cases increased, we saw a decrease in application, which you could assume or presume that potentially organizations that might be hosting events were now a little more leery of that and were waiting to see what would happen Judging by the volume of recent applications, people are feeling more confident about booking events, even though the pandemic is still here. That could be a sign that businesses and event planners are learning to live with the uncertainty, a good sign for Colorado's tourism economy. What we found is, um, especially this past summer, we had I think four months in a row where we had more applications and more funding approved than the previous months. Um, So we saw a real uptick. A rebate was just approved for the Curling National Championships. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News.
0: And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nancy Lofholm and Greer Hancock. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.